and welcome to episode 87 of Penny Red. As you can see, I'm uh, outside my usual recording environment. I'm in the wild, so to speak. Um, I am at a location which is probably uh, almost the opposite to what you would uh, imagine would be a safe haven for uh, people that like a somewhat sedentary lifestyle and like table or sitting down style games. I'm at a, I'm at a gymnasium, a recreation centre, if you will. Um, and I had the opportunity to talk with uh, Jake Boone, who is the uh, Grand Fromage of, of Slab Town Games, and he's going to give us a little bit of information about some of the uh, projects he's got going on. But before we get into that, uh, I'll let Jake introduce himself, and then we'll get into some of the standard Penny Red type stuff that we uh, that we do along the way. So, hi, Jake. How's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. I've got, I've got a million and one questions for you here, and we've sort of touched from episode to episode on some of the um, some of the things which you are now doing that were just sort of ideas and dreams that I had along the way, so I'm, I'm excited to get into it. But before before we do that, Tom, how did you get started in role-playing? Oh, it was a lot of years ago, probably 1983, 84, I think. Um, a friend of mine brought uh, Redbox D&D to middle school and uh, told me all about it and I thought it sounded really fun and we played. I remember my very first character was a fighter who lasted for maybe 15 minutes before he was um, killed by falling down a well while trying to hide from a skeleton. It wasn't the most auspicious of beginnings, but <laughs> I, I was <laughs> That's right. Yes, I, I've brought that up a number of times in the past as well. It seems that quite a few people have... Um, Quite a few people have situations where they, they make up their character and then their character dies almost immediately. And so instead of, you know, the standard thing that happens when most people try something and uh, defeat it almost instantaneously, it almost seems to be like what you need to do to form a strong, forge a strong sort of bond with role-playing is for something terrible to happen to your character in the, in the first couple of couple of minutes. So you're in, you're in excellent company. Yeah, it makes it so that you have to, you know, well, now I have to defeat this thing or else, you know, I'll, I'll gonna, have lost. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. I'm going to defeat this well if it's the last thing I do. Um, so you uh, you started with Redbox D&D, and that was in middle school. And how long did you play that for, and what did you do next? Not very long, um, largely because, you know, the 80s was the time of the satanic panic for role-playing games. Oh, I and, like it. Uh, my parents were not immune to that, and so when they discovered oh. I had been playing this terribly evil, they thought, game. Um, I was not allowed to have any books or anything at my house, so I only got to wow. play occasionally at lunch hour at school, um, you know, behind my parents' back. And wow. So it took then, there was a long lull um, when I got into Car Wars by Steve Jackson Games, yep. which is not a role-playing game, and so that was all right. Um, yes, all good, yes. <laughs> and then uh, when I got into, I suppose it was early high school, um, when my parents had mellowed somewhat on the whole uh, D&D is equal thing. Uh, a, f a friend of mine I had met in high school ran a GURPS fantasy game. Right, right. I'm going to back you up here. I can't possibly miss out on the opportunity to just delve more into the satanic panic and your parents' sort of rea reaction to it. Did, did they see something on television about it? Or did they did they sit you down and say, look, look Jake, you know, we understand that you know, you're uh, we're going through changes right now and, and we're concerned about this, this new hobby that you've... Uh, taken up. It's not drinking or, or smoking or uh, doing drugs. It's uh, reading books and playing pretend and we're just a little bit concerned about that. It was, um, I, I wish it had been that calm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 
all it, really it was wild. really just a you know wow this game's sure neat and you know I, I i don't remember exactly what happened but i mentioned it or it came up in conversation in some other way and my mom said oh dungeons and dragons that's evil and that was pretty much it. I just wasn't allowed to have it in the house. I don't know where she originally got the information, whether it was from friends at church or whether it was, you know, oh, uh, some itinerant preacher or television. But <laughs> he was, she was absolutely certain that um, if, if I continued in my, my role-playing ways, I would end up being, you know, seduced by Satan. And, you know, who, who knows what would have become of me by now. That's right. Well... I like the idea of this itinerant um, preacher, this like level two cleric, uh, going around in America with his uh, with his um, sermons, proselytizing about the evils of of role playing and um, and sort of catching people's imagination and, and they're rushing home. But did they, uh, so you came over, hey mum, dad, look, I did this really cool thing, and they said, no, Jake Boone, you shall not do this. I have learned about this and. And uh, to save your mortal soul, I must intervene at this moment. Give me all your books, I shall burn them. That's pretty much kind of the way it was. I mean, we wow. actually had in, um, you know, here in the States, we had itinerant, well, they weren't itinerant preachers necessarily that just did that, but uh, a given church would have, you know, a special guest star, effectively, which was <laughs> a guy who would go from church to church, and he would talk about his struggles against Satan and how he's got this ministry to stop the youth from being corrupted with these evil role-playing games. Nice. And, oh, by the way, why don't you pass the plate and give me more money so I can continue my ministry traveling around the country, getting money from churches to continue pretending that D&D right. is somehow um, a direct conduit to hell. Right. Well, so it actually almost sounds to me like it's uh, like it was a hot-button thing in a good way for uh, you know, these traveling, these one marauding bands of, of clerics to to uh, make a bit of money on the side. So it was actually a sort of a financial thing they were tapping into? Oh, there, there was definitely a financial aspect to it. Um, the way I finally convinced my mom that it wasn't evil, uh, we were at a, a Christian bookstore where she liked to go, and, you know, I was young, so I had to be there too. Um, you know, I liked the other bookstore down the street because they had gaming books. But this place, you know, one of the books I spotted on the shelf, though, was uh, by a woman named Jean Hake Roby, and it was called The Truth About Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, I can't wait to hear about this. Yeah. And so I asked her, I said, will you buy this for me? And she said, well, of course. <laughs> and, what, and then I sat down, I went through this book, and I actually, you know, this is in the days before the Internet, so mm. I didn't have the, the ease of Wikipedia, but I was able to, you know, do some research and point out, you know, I actually wrote in the margins of the book all the places oh. where she was just completely wrong about everything. Oh, and right, right. Stuff. You know, it was it was clearly, you know, I I imagine the author may well have been sincere in her beliefs, but her scholarship left a lot to be desired. Right, um, her right. bibliography was mostly references to her other books. Right, um, good. <laughs> you know, so she's putting herself on things. And yes. the cover image I remember specifically because it was um, – it was a plagiarized picture from the Re the Return of the Jedi sketchbook. It was the Rancor, uh, one of the early oh, sketches of the Rancor monster. Of course, yes. <laughs> that someone had colored and used as the cover of this book about Dungeons and Dragons, which I found close enough. Close amusing. enough. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So it sounds like. Um, did you ever read the, um, the the book Playing with Fire? Like the the uh, sort of like the the the, the arc, Well, I suppose the the most well known. Um, Book, the one where it sort of quotes, uh, well, pretends to quote the book as saying, you know, like you must go out and rape and pillage and so on and so forth. 
Is that did she refer to that book at all? Uh, I don't remember her mentioning that one. I never read that one. Right, right. That's uh, yeah. I've, I've, we've talked about that a couple of times on the show, but I've not heard of this one. This sounds fascinating. I'll, I'll see if I can. I'll see if I can track it down. And so you bought this book and you wrote your rebuttal in the margins. And then did you hand it to your mother or? I did, um, and I walked her through it because I suspected she wasn't going to actually read it. Um, <laughs> and and at that point, she sort of backed off on the the it's evil thing. Right. Um, one of the big things for her, we when I was you know younger, I was involved with the the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronism, the people who dress up as knights and go hit each other with sticks. Right, right. Um, and my mom was in that too, and she liked it. She had fun oh. with it. And in that book, it claimed that the SCA was a cult of people who had become obsessed with Dungeons and Dragons. Ah. And I was able to prove to mom's satisfaction that, well, since the SCA started in 1966 and D&D wasn't invented until 1974, perhaps the people saying D&D is evil aren't really um, doing so much research as they are making things up and selling them to people. Right. Game, set, and match, young Jake Boone. <laughs> yeah, I was very proud of myself. Still am, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, it's not the first time you prove your parents wrong uh, is a sad and it's a bittersweet moment, I suppose, because on one hand, it's it's nice to finally be right, but at the same time to, to recognize that they can be uh, fallible. But I guess in this instance, it's uh, it's uh, all is well that ends well, at least from a role playing role playing standpoint for you. Absolutely. Um, okay. And frankly, for me, uh, you know, the the sweet definitely outweighed the bitter on that one. <laughs> so uh, you did middle school Dungeons and Dragons, and then a few years later you uh, played – I remember playing Car Wars. I remember it being dreadfully difficult to do anything at all without burning in a – like crashing and burning in a horrible, fiery uh, scene. Was, was that because I was not doing it right, or um, is that actually what happened? Because I remember the card game <laughs> seemed much more better, much better. It's because you were playing it. Uh, much of my Car Wars experience was sitting around by myself creating more and more cars <laughs> that I really wanted to play. And then uh, the, the friends I had at the time, most of them would look at that and say, man, that's really complicated. And yeah, that'd be about sure. it. You know, we'd play for a little bit and we'd fudge half the rules. Yes. Um, so, you know, getting my uh, slightly less geeky friends to to jump into car wars with both feet was a little difficult but I, I <laughs> yeah there's plenty of lonely fun to be had with car wars that's for sure but i, I think that for me again you know the, the most fun i had was in making those cars and my ham-fisted attempts at actually you know, coloring them in and making them look like decent automobiles was uh yeah that, that's the most fun that i had but i didn't do it did you enjoy the card game i i've only played the the card game a little um I'm actually more familiar with the the other game that they had, the the Battle Cattle, which was effectively the same game with, uh, except it was cows with guns instead of cars with guns. Right. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> um. So uh, you had some Car Wars uh, action in there, and then yep. that was in high school. You said like a like junior year in high school or something, or yeah, late middle school to early high school was uh, Car Wars, and then I think I was probably a freshman or sophomore in high school when. The GURPS game began, and um, oh, right, yes. the GURPS fantasy. Yes, I remember saying this. Yeah, and that was at that point. Then I I found that I had really kind of uh, discovered the thing that really made me happy in it in the gaming world was right. playing GURPS because you know GURPS is a relatively complex system. 
but you yeah. know, having come from Car Wars, I was used to that. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And it was very flexible. You know, I could make characters that were more than just a fighter or a wizard. You right. know, I could, I could have all those little uh, bizarre skills that I may never use, but you know, buy gum if I ever need to whittle a piece of wood, I'm ready, you know, or something. No, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> that, that was one of the things I enjoyed about, again, more lonely fun available. You could, after Dungeons & Dragons, that GURPS gave you a real opportunity to sort of, like you say, whittle exactly what it was that you wanted, you know, and you could flesh it out by taking things like colorblindness and all those things that gave you extra points but had no right. real effect. And, and yeah, so so GURPS Fantasy, and then what was the first, uh, so, so you did the GURPS Fantasy, and were you running the games or, or were you um, playing the games? No, my, my friend James Driscoll was the one who started off uh, running the game. He he gave me a pre-generated character, was a reptile man uh, named Kurgan. Oh, okay. And that <laughs> I had not yet seen Highlander, so I didn't know where that name oh. came from. It would sound like a good name. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, wow, that's a great name. Yes, it is a great name. So. <laughs> <laughs> a, a big, dumb, you know, scaly, fightery type. Used a halberd, right. I remember. And if I remember correctly... He hated milk. That was one of his quirks. I love the idea of quirks and GURPS, these yes, tiny yeah, little, yeah. you know, characterizing things. Yes, that's um, right. Yeah. That's just, so that, I mean, there's no reason you couldn't have done that in Dungeons & Dragons, but because they didn't tell you to, you know, like it was it was much harder in those days, or at least I found. Well, it, it never occurred the box. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, um, yeah, he ran a, a, a fantasy campaign of that for a while, and pretty soon... You know, I went down to the bookstore and I ordered a copy of the GURPS Basic set and I bought that. And then, yes, from that point on, I was hooked. And I was, you know, anytime I was in uh, some other larger town where they had, you know, a bookstore that might actually carry GURPS books normally, I'd always, you know, browse and often pick right, one up right. and bring it home, that sort of thing. And did you find that your GURPS books fell apart very quickly or not really? Actually, they were uh, surprisingly durable um, okay. compared to some other books I've had. Uh, oh, yeah, I still I'm, have. I mean, my my GURPS collection can be measured in linear feet. Oh, um, right. I have a ton of them. And well, maybe uh, this is time for me to ask one of the the, the standard Peter questions, which is how many role playing books do you own? And you can include PDFs in that, I suppose. But physical role playing books do you actually own? Oh, uh, estimate. Eight yards of role playing books. <laughs> if you if you line them up. I have no idea how many that is. <laughs> oh, sounds like that could be it's the high hundreds there, maybe even a thousand. Probably not a thousand, but definitely in the hundreds. Yes. Um, well, I uh, yeah, I don't. I don't some of them are nice and fat, you know. But... Yes, right. right. Did you have uh, what's the what's the the role playing book, the big fat, super expensive one by uh, can't remember the name of the chap now, but. Um, uh, the name completely escapes me, but the Holy Grail of Rolfling books. It'll come back to me later on. Um, so you did some uh, some GURPS, and then that was in in middle school and then to early high school. Did you play GURPS for uh, for a long time? I mean, it sounds like you were pretty invested in getting the, the stuff for it, but oftentimes the stuff that you're interested in doesn't always jive with the, the stuff that uh, the people you're playing with are, unless, of course, you're the GM, in which case they can like it or lump it. Right. When I, when I met James... Um... He was kind of putting together a, a role-playing club at the high school, and right. so GURPS was my favorite. But I ended up also playing a lot of D&D and a lot of Role Master, which, um, wow. which even for me, I have a relatively high con uh, tolerance for complex mechanics. Even for me, Role Master was a little bit over the top. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But we we played a lot of it anyway. 
And actually, my, my role master experience, I think, was kind of something that sort of shaped my my idea that gaming should be a little easier than this. <laughs> right. Yeah, I remember when we uh, when I, my group uh, did some sort of touched on role master. It almost felt like role master was kind of like eating a broccoli and your spinach. You know, like it it wasn't necessarily good, but it was good for you um, <laughs> to sort of tackle something so difficult. You know, like to get on top of that was something that was good for your character. So we uh, we sort of we gave it a go for for a while, but. Um, uh, we settled on on Middle Earth as being a MIRP as being a, a a good halfway point between the standard Dungeons and Dragons type stuff that we are playing and the more complex rules of roles. Did you did you use uh, MIRP at all? We certainly did. Um, yeah, I I think I, I only had a couple of my MIRPs characters killed off uh, over time, but <laughs> right. but yeah, we we played that pretty extensively. Um, and once I got out of out of high school, um, there was other group of folks in town, you know, that I that I met and started hanging out right. with, who also were gamers, and we did a lot of again more D and D because D and D is omnipresent in the gaming world. Right, of course. But, um, there it's a was universal language, if you like. What? It's a lingua franca, if you like. Like it's a universal language for role players. You're know, like yeah. everybody's done that, right? It's a, a starting off point for a new group, perhaps. Yep. Um, so yeah, we did some Palladium, including the the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game, which I just loved. Yeah, yeah, again, lonely fun for me. I, I made a lot of characters that didn't do a lot of actual playing. <laughs> uh, let's see, we did uh, Marvel Superheroes, the old one, right? With the uh, the phase rip um, attributes. Yes. And made some really abusive characters in that. It was fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Let's see, we, what else did we get into? We got into all sorts of stuff. Oh, and then I, I found my other great love of gaming. Um, I was around, you know, college age at that point. Right. And uh, my roommate at the time ran Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Right. And I, I once again fell in love head over heels with a, a role-playing setting because oh my goodness. The, the grim, the greedy relationship you're about to begin there. You're about to embark on an abusive relationship that requires you to spend a lot of money. And indeed, um, <laughs> I, I was, you know, I, I still have a little bit of Stockholm syndrome about Warhammer. Yes. Uh, but the 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 game world, play, I, I played through the Enemy Within campaign, which is right. um, still, I think, pretty widely renowned as one of the best role playing campaigns of all time. Yes. Um, and it just, the, the feel of it was just wonderful. The idea that like, okay, my character is not this huge important guy who will wade through fields of goblins and laugh. He's yeah. a guy who could catch a cold that kind of gets, settles down into his lungs and then kills him. You know, it's, <laughs> the, the, that sounds like my experience with, um, with Han. <laughs> yeah, the, the vast unimportance of the characters was, yes was wonderful. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. yeah, the challenge, right? Like, it's, it's often, I mean, I think, it, at least for me, um, I find that the the saying, you know, it's, it's not the it's not the destination, it's the journey that's important. And I find that journey of, of trying desperately hard to, to nurse a feeble little first level character through to something around about fifth or sixth level, I think, is probably the sweet spot for me. Like, if I can get it that far, then that's really the game for me. Anything after that is... Uh, you know, like I feel like I'm I'm too powerful, like I'm, I'm too important in the world, and there's not, not that same sense of struggle that there once was. It's just creatures with more hit dice, and it's just a war of attrition after that, right? Right. 
yeah, I, I agree completely. So did you, um, do you have the two, um, the two chaos books? Like the, I'm trying to remember what the names of them are now, but like the two, the two sort of holy grail of... Uh, I can see them from where I'm sitting right now. Oh, nice, good, yeah. The, yeah. the Realms of Chaos, um, Slaves yeah. to Darkness and the Lost and the Damned. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah those they're... are, um, as gaming books, they're okay. Never really used them much. But right, now, right. as sort of as as totems of my my old school street cred, they are yes, invaluable. Right. <laughs> yes, yeah. That's that's again. That's a, as we touched on another question we have, which is: Are there any books that you no longer have, which you wish you still had? But it sounds like you've kept all yours. Oh yeah, the um, I haven't kept all of mine. Um, the the Ghostbusters role playing game I don't have anymore, and I wish I had kept it because it was hilarious and fun. Right. Right. Um, I've still got all my old Torg stuff, which I'm happy about. Um, I have a, I have Unknown Armies, which is a fantastic game. It's not as old, but it's a, I think it's a solid addition to any yes. game library. Yeah, no question. Yeah. Um, those are the. I, I think that's really the only stuff I would really. I've kept most of it, so I think Ghostbusters is the only one that I got rid of that I really miss. Right. right. Um, I had some real clinkers, um, you know, some games that were just absolutely terrible that I did get rid of, and I don't even remember which ones now. I almost made the mistake of getting Cinnabar, and uh, all right. Yes. <laughs> we could have by that point, I was working in a game store, so I was able to oh, like browse right. through it at my leisure, and I decided yes. not to pick that one up. <laughs> Well, it sounds. I think that history will say that you made the right decision there, um, at least in terms of. Uh, well, yeah, anyway. Uh, so you have. Um, so by this stage, you know you're sort of in college and you're doing Warhammer fantasy role playing. And so, what what did you get into after that? At what point did you uh, did you ever go into World of Darkness? Because it sounds almost like you're the same age as I am, and that World Warhammer fantasy role playing was around about the time of the the World of Darkness, if I remember rightly. Yep, I was in uh, Washington State, uh, and I stopped in at a little bookstore, and I saw the Vampire the Masquerade book, you know, the first edition. It had just come out, Yeah. and I bought it because, you know, by that point, anytime I saw a role-playing game, I bought it because yes, it's right, right. <laughs> That's and, right. You don't spend uh, money on anything else, right? It's pretty cheap compared to, uh, well, to, to many hobbies. It's not that expensive, right? I mean, it can add up, I yeah. suppose, over time. Well, I never took up smoking, so that helped. Well, yeah, it's not like um, all my, all my kids, cigarette so. money go went to role playing games. Right, right, yeah. And so I, I got, yeah, I got a copy of Vampire. Read through the whole thing. Didn't fully get it. I mean, I, I realized it was you know dark and all that, but I, just from reading it, I didn't quite get what the tone was supposed to be. Yes. Um, but later, I don't even remember who ran the first Vampire game I played in, but we tried it, and it was pretty fun. Um, it was a nice change from. You know the the same old stuff we've been doing for a while, and right. Um, and it kind of it was interesting in that the people I gamed with there was sort of um, we were all one gaming group, but there was a definite split in the the feel of the game. There right. was kind of the the narrative, you know, oh we are vampires, oh we are full of angst and that sort of thing. You know, on one side, which is kind of where I I tended to lean that way. Yes. But then there was the other side, which is. We've got superpowers. Let's kill stuff. You know. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. There um, is definitely that. Uh, that, and I think that probably those two, 
sort of um, that dichotomy, I guess, um, is really where vampire and werewolf, like that's kind of almost the the feel for for vampire and werewolf, right? Like that, yeah. That, uh, that split. Um, and, and so you played vampire, and uh, and did you play mage at all, or changeling, or wraith? I played mage, I think, once, and it yes. kind of left me cold. Um, right. And I never, I never really bothered bothered with changeling or wraith. Uh, right. By that point, I'd gotten, I, I had done my, um, you know, white wolf flavor stuff by then, right. and right. Uh, and I had moved on to other things. Right. So such as. Oh man, uh, let's see. Well, okay, GURPS was still, you know, rolling strong there, and by that point, I had enough stuff. I was able to do some bizarre, you know, mix and matching of things. I was, I was game mastering a lot more often by this point than I was right. playing. Right. Um. And I think one of the big changes came by. By now, I'm I'm working at a game store, so I'm, you know. Right. Uh, one, I'm taking home very little of my paycheck as in the form of that's money. Right. I'm taking it home right. in the form of games. Yes, that's right. And um, a fellow comes into our game store one day, and his name's Brian Underhill. And right. he is the author of GURPS Cliffhangers, which right. I own and am a fan of. And so right. we get to talking, and we become friends, and you know we're still friends this day now. Yes. But um, so, of course, it, it seemed uh, natural that we would start gaming together. And then GURPS was pretty much the game we played all the time. It was, you know, yes. different different settings, different genres, but always GURPS. Yes. And um, we had a lot of fun. Uh, yes. I'll tell you what, though. One of the most, um, I guess, game-wise, one of the most uh, stressful things I ever did was decide to run a game of GURPS cliffhangers for the author of GURPS cliffhangers. Wow. Uh, because... You know, there's a certain amount of intimidation there. That, I would say, yeah, <laughs> you know, I would say. I've never had to make it right. You know, is this the game that he expected Gurps Cliffhangers to be? Or am, right, I, right. am I taking his baby and screwing it all up? That's right, yeah. yeah that, that's but he, the he's thing. kind enough to say he enjoyed it. So. Oh, good, yeah. That's the thing that I always – I haven't been sort of in that situation yet, but the games that I've written to see how somebody else would go about using them, like obviously I've had playtest information back, but – you know, playtest information is not the same thing as actually as actually seeing it. You know, we've got the the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You know, where if if I were to go along and even watch somebody doing it, then I wouldn't quite get the same experience as if I weren't there, right? Or if they knew it was being recorded, then again, you know, you've got that. So I, I often wonder to myself, you know, what it would be like to to be a fly on the wall during one of those things. But unfortunately, that's one of the one of the, the things about I guess being a being a game designer is that unless you become really familiar with um, a group that's not the group you play with, and they play your game. You're never really going to, uh, never really going to experience that. Uh, at least get that authentic experience of what it might be like to, to, you know, to to see somebody playing your game and how they might, what they might do with what you had intended to happen. And I, I think what you'd have to do is get like a big old false mustache or something, and go to a gaming <laughs> convention and sign that's, up for, for a go. your game under a false name and just play. And saying, I'm not very familiar with this. Can you, you know, how does it work? What's oh, yes. You, sir, are a genius. I shall, I shall have to try that. <laughs> if ever I can find out, if ever I can find somebody playing one of my games, then that's, that's what I'll do for sure. Um, that's very, that's very clever. Um, so you played with, uh, you played uh, some GURPS again while you were, uh, after you played White Wolf. And then what did you get into after that? Because this must be, it must be about 15 years ago now, something like that. Yeah, it must be. Oh, man. 
That makes me feel old. Um, <laughs> well, we discovered as we played GURPS, which we did for years and years, um, eventually we got to the point where we realized what we were playing. We had all the GURPS books on the table, but what we were playing wasn't really GURPS. It was totemic GURPS, where we called it GURPS. We made GURPS characters, you know, following the GURPS rules. But during play, um, the rules kind of went out the window because we were experienced enough GMs, you know, they'd say, uh, you know, oh, I want to do this thing. You know, I want to I leap out of the back of this truck onto the roof of the car that's speeding along next to on the freeway. It's like, okay, uh, roll, uh, you need at least a, uh, an 11 or under to, to make it. Yes. And you just kind of make up the numbers because you know what feels about right. Right, yeah. Um, that's, that's, sort of like a, that's sort of a pivotal moment, I think, in a lot of people's gaming thing, where they go from, I need to follow the rules here to the point where you're kind of like, this game is all about the story that I'm telling, and I'm going to tweak this here, I'm going to ignore that, I'm going to wave my hands at that there. And, and you know, it just a sort of a, it's a gradual, I suppose, but then sooner or later you find yourself, you know, playing your own version of, of a game. And I think that that's really the, if you like, that's kind of like your maturation as a, as a role player where, you know, you've, you've reached that point where you know the type of game that you want and you know that no game is necessarily going to be that um, unless you write it yourself. So you kind of start to, to change those rules and, and change the way you at least you perhaps interpretation or implementation so you're playing your game. Yeah, and, and if, if I had done it that way, I'd have felt very clever. But the way I did it was not noticing at all. I felt like right. I was playing GURPS. Yes. I just wasn't. And I didn't know this until years and years later when right. um, I was living in a different town and... I, um, by this point, you know, I'd played like Legend of the Five Rings and Seventh Sea, which are both fantastic games that I yes, very much enjoy. Um, and we had, uh, I, I'd been invited to go play in this ongoing GURPS campaign, a GURPS fantasy game. I'm like, oh, great. I haven't played that in a long time. I'm very excited. And I went to play and they played GURPS the way the rules say to play GURPS. <laughs> And it was the I most deadly dull thing I'd ever done. <laughs> right. Because right. there was so much math and there was so much, uh, you know, looking up things on charts and, you know, figuring out, okay, the range is this much, the, you know, he's going this fast, there's wind from that direction, you know, yes. all the modifiers to calculate. And, right. and it's not that they were doing it wrong or, or playing a bad game. They were all having fun with it. It's just yes. I had diverged so much from the basic set of GURPS. What, what I thought I was getting into was not actually GURPS. And right. so it was a bad match for me. And uh, <laughs> that, that kind of made me realize, you know, that what I really wanted was not a hugely complex mechanical system that I had to deal with, but was instead a, uh, you know, something one could do quickly, but that had lots of, I suppose, lots of, uh, Complexity, not complication, but complexity. Sure. And you so, uh, at what point did you, um, or even if you did, did you touch on any story games? My what first one, I found a um, a game design website called The Forge. And it was a forum with a run by Ron Edwards. Um, a bunch of people talking about designing indie role playing games, which I thought was really cool. And I got on there and. Um, and uh, a friend of mine at the time was designing a LARP, and so I was trying to help her do game design on that. And so I was at, you know, doing some research on that is when I found The Forge. Yes. And so I believe my first indie game that I, um, that I went for was, let's see, it, may, it was either The Shabal Hiri Roach or Dogs in the Vineyard. Right. 
And um, it, it really kind of opened my eyes to a whole new, you know, kind of, I guess, paradigm of how yes. role-playing can work. And, and yes. I loved it very much. Um, yes. I am apparently a man of many enthusiasms. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I, I ended up uh, collecting a, a small, you know, a modest little shelf of, of indie games, because by that point I had gotten married and, um, you know, it, it wasn't really okay to spend all my money on, on role-playing games and then, you know, eat ramen based on the change I can pull out of the couch by the, by the end of the month. Right. That's right. Uh, so I had to curtail my activities a little bit that way, but, right. um, but I ended up, uh, ended up with uh, a number of, of good indie games, inspectors being one of my favorites. It yes. replaced yeah. the hole that Ghostbusters left in my heart. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, it filled that up and, and made me happy again there. And Let's see. I'm trying to see what else I've got over there. Um, My life with Master is a fun one. Dust Devils. Um, I have Microscope now, uh, which yes. I haven't had a chance to play yet. And of course, Fiasco, which is always great fun. Yes. yes. So, yeah. This, uh, so I, I got into indie games um, pretty heavily there for a while. You know, playing them a lot and yes. trying out new ones. And. Uh, Finally, I think that brings us almost to now. Yes, but what are you playing now? Um, well, we just got done with uh, the new Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, the one with all the cards and the fancy dice and stuff, which yes, yes. I like a lot. Yes, I've and not seen now, it, it sounds like it's pretty high production value on it, for sure. It's very high production value, and it looks, you know, it looks so gimmicky at first, but um, it's the, those all those special components and dice and things really do... I think they make the game work really well. Right. And so now we're playing, um, I'm in an Edge of the Empire campaign. Right. Uh, the, the, the new Fantasy Flight Star Wars game, which uh, owes a lot to their, their Warhammer version. You know, right. Again, it has the same sort of style of you know, fancy dice that, that tell you a lot of things all in one yes. role, which I like. Right. Yes, yeah. I mean, it helps to keep the narrative moving, doesn't it? That's, that's one of the, the pluses, I think, of the... Of some of these sort of new, I wouldn't go so far as say new dice systems, but the way that they, that you're able to get more information from a single roll than perhaps uh, people had done, you know, in the initial sort of run of uh, Warhammer Fantasy, right? Yes, absolutely. Because in, in old Warhammer Fantasy, you'd roll to see where you hit, or if you hit, and you had a really clever thing where you reversed the the, the order of the dice to see where you hit them. Right, right. Um, but then you had to see if they dodge, and then you had to see how much damage you did, and if that went through their Toughness, you would apply it to their wounds, and then if that got through that, you get the then roll a critical, and finally at that point you see whether or not they've fallen down and stopped bothering you or not. Yes, true. Whereas yeah. um, the the new systems, it's pretty much you assemble your handful of dice, you roll them, and now you know everything all at once. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I think and that sort of um, that idea I think is is probably where role-playing, I mean, obviously there's going to be plenty of shades of grey, but that's where sort of role-playing splits between this, the people that prefer the simulation and the people that prefer the narrative. Now, it's not just that two of them can't go together, but for myself, I know that I prefer a game that runs along, and when you get to combat, the, the combat or, or any resolution of any sort of mechanical thing, like picking a lock or something, becomes part of the narrative. That's what I prefer. I don't prefer the role-playing to stop at that point, roll some dice, figure out what happens, and then move on. I like to be able to to use the dice rolls as, to, to tell a story um, yeah. rather than have the dice roll be sort of a mini game in, inside the game, if you like, or a maxi game in, in some cases like Rollmaster where it takes a long time. Yeah, it's, um, 
it's it's that kind of that long-standing trade-off that game designers have to make. They can have some really neat mechanical systems that you know cover all sorts of interesting you know eventualities in the game, but if they um, if they throw in too much of that, the game slows down because humans aren't very good calculators. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so the more you make humans you know interact with the mechanics of the system the you know you tend to bog things down and i remember i mean i remember very vividly in role master games we'd be role playing having a great time and then you know a couple of goblins would jump out of the forest to attack us <laughs> and we'd be like and, and there would sort of be this uh not because we didn't like killing goblins because we could you know we certainly yeah. enjoyed that but who doesn't right but we knew we were going to spend the next probably 45 minutes to an hour yeah. simulating about 20 seconds worth of in-game time right right um, yeah. with all the die rolling and all the charts and all the right. math and right right it was it was a drag on the fun yeah that's right for sure okay so that sort of leads you up to the to the present day but i mean that's that's not taking up the majority of your time like right now you're now i've I mentioned it a couple of times um on on penny Red, but there's a there's a game that i'm working on right now that uh which I haven't really said much about, so again, I won't say too much about it. But the bottom line is that one of the things that comes out of the game is an artifact of play. Like I, I, I was speaking with Daniel Solis um, in episode, I want to say, 65 or something. But uh, we were talking about artifacts of play, and that sort of got me thinking about uh, making some changes to the game that I was working on. And I, and I like this idea that by playing this game, in the process of doing it, we'd create sort of a an artifact which you could then show to people. So, I mean, it's never going to quite be the, the same as being there, but by by presenting this artifact, you know, somebody who, who was familiar with the game could take a look at it and sort of get a rough idea of what had happened during your game without, you know, uh, sort of a shorthand, if you like, for, for what had transpired during during the story. Um, and so I thought, well, I wonder how I could bring that to sort of to tablets or to phones or to somehow work technology into this so that people that weren't in the same place could maybe collaborate on a map or something like that. And then people told me, you know, well, that already exists. And so I, I sort of put it aside. But but why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're, what, uh, you're doing? It's sort of quite an exciting sounding thing, at least from what I could gather from uh, from your Kickstarter, your Kickstarter page here. Well, okay. So we've got um, a Kickstarter running right now for what we're calling Storyscape. And, and what Storyscape is, it's kind of um, kind of an unholy hybrid between computer role-playing games and MMOs and a paper and pencil tabletop game, right. but not in the bad way that everybody who I say that to thinks it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if you go back and, and look at uh, kind of how gaming evolved, you know, from 1974 when you know Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson were putting together Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. Um, they had to use the technology that was available in 1974, which was right. paper and pencils and, you know, little plastic shapes. Yep. Uh, and since that started, this whole gaming uh, industry, yes. you know, e everything kind of traces this line of descent from yes. original Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, right. any game you see halflings in, for example, you can trace right back to D&D &D and through that to Tolkien. Sure. Um, well, Using these, you know, this particular set of dice, the you know the D4, the D6, the D8, all the way up to the D20 and the D100, that all, you know, it it comes from design decisions that were made in 1974 because of what they had available to them. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, nowadays we have 
some pretty amazing technology available. And so what Storyscape does is it kind of, it's reinventing role-playing to cover the, the idea, what if Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson had had access to iPads or laptops or you know Androids or whatever while they were building D&D, what would role-playing look like now right. uh, using today's technology? And so what we've done is we've taken all of the stuff that would normally be cluttering up your table while you play, uh, yes. paper, pencils, dice, that sort of stuff, and we've put it inside the, the computers so that each player is sitting there with a, a tablet or laptop or something. You still have a live human game master, though. We're not trying to go the route of like a Final Fantasy or a World of Warcraft, where sure. you know where everything you do has to have been uh, kind of predetermined by a programmer. Yes, right. But where you have a human at the helm deciding, you know, if you want to do something completely unexpected, you can, or yes. at least you can attempt it. Absolutely. Um, and so what we're trying to do, I guess, is combine the strengths of what computers do well with the strengths of what humans do well, and yes. not try to take what one does well and make the other one do it. Right, sure. Okay, so this sort of like tying back a little bit into what you were talking about with regards to uh, like a lot of computation, you know, it, it bogging, the, bogging the game down and, and um, you're trying to sort of resolve some of those things quickly. Like it, to, to what extent does the, does the computer take care of resolution? Well, if you, it's um, the computer does all the stuff that you would normally in a tabletop role-playing game do between the point when, let's say you're a player and you say, okay, I'm going to swing my sword at the orc. Mm -hmm. um, from that point to the point when the GM says, okay, he, the orc falls down, he's dead. Right, okay. The computer can do all of the administrative junk that you'd normally have to do in between there, from rolling the dice uh, to calculating all the modifiers and not forgetting any of them. Yes, um, yes, sure. To you know, seeing if your sword breaks, to figuring out critical hits, you know, applying whatever wounds the orc already had, right? All of that stuff, and even applying the death of the orc to the morale levels of the other orcs, right? Um, to see if they decide that they're you know done being in a fight with you. Okay. Um, all of that stuff the computer can do on its own, but the GM still has the opportunity to override any of that. Right. So you can say, you know, if if you're the type of GM who wants to let the chips fall where they may, you can just sit back and, and let it happen. But if you feel the need, you know, maybe you have new players and you're going easy on them or something, you can right. go in there and, you know, adjust things with some overrides that let you, um, you know, oh, the orc hit you, but, oh, he didn't do that much damage, and you can change the... Yes, right. So, so can you like get it? Can you default or like make it stop at the end of every round? So, like, just say for example, if your sword does break, then you know you get the opportunity to like whip out another sword, or you can sort of try some sort of fancy evading maneuver or, or things like that. Right. It's not real time. It is turn based. Yes, so, okay. um, everybody, what the idea is, all the players sitting around the table all input what they want to do. So, you know, the fighter wants to stab the orc in the face, and the wizard wants to cast a fireball spell, and the the thief wants to try to sneak around behind them or whatever. And uh, once all of that's put in and the GM has decided what he wants the, the NPCs to do, well, then the system does all the, all the initiative stuff and resolves all of those things kind of at the same time yes. so that you're not, you're not having to wait for your turn to come around. You're right, just, okay. uh, you know, between every round. You're doing your round at the same time everybody else is, and then you see what happens um, as that all plays out. But it doesn't happen until after the GM has a chance to say, okay, everybody's ready, go ahead and you know, let them see what happened. Because right. the GM has to have that moment to be able to say, 
oh, the wizard's going to die if this happens. I don't know if I want that to happen. I'm going to change right, the sure. results a little bit. That orc actually missed. Okay, now. Okay. So does that require that you've also written a system which you could play without the use of the of the computer? Like what I'm imagining is that, um, like, do you have to input the various resolution systems or do you have one where you choose Dungeons & Dragons resolution or, or Rollmaster resolution? Or how does that whole situation work? What we have um, is a, a baked-in set of game mechanics. And um, we were lucky enough to get Robin D. Laws to, to write it for us. Right, which, sure. You know, as you may be aware, is a huge coup for us. Um, yeah. and, and so the, the underlying system, is it's built in. It's, we're not trying to replicate other gaming systems because for us that kind of be a step back because those gaming systems were all designed for the technology of 1974. Yes, absolutely. Um, From your original statement, yes, I see where you're going. Yeah, yeah so we, we have a system that's designed to take advantage of what computers can do. Yes. And so we're, we're sticking with that. So if you think of it as sort of a GURPS-like system, yes. you do all sorts of settings, Yes. but oh, you're using right. one basic underlying structure for it. Okay, so does it do things like range and all that type of stuff? Yep, it figures range. It, um, you know, if you're say an archer and you're standing on top of a hill, and you're shooting at an enemy down, you know, down the slope below you, yes. and it's, you know, it's twilight, so it's a little dark. Uh, you have the flu. It's raining, and your enemy <laughs> is hiding in a shrub. It does all of that calculation for you, and you don't have to worry about it because okay. it knows it. It's the computer's already keeping track of all that stuff. It knows right. if you're sick. It knows if it's dark. It knows where the bad guy is. Right. And so the only thing, you know, the, the time it takes is effectively the time for you to say, to tell the, the system, okay, shoot my arrow at that guy. And right. the arrow is away, and you find out right away what it did to the guy. Okay. And so if I'm at the other end, so to speak, like I'm the, the game master, do I have to set the, the battlefield up ahead of time and put the orc in the bush and that type of stuff? Or how does that work? You can. Um, what generally uh, the... The way it's designed is so you have a sort of scene-based adventure that you put together. So you start with scene one, and it might be in a tavern, and then scene two is, you know, the road outside of town when you're ambushed by goblins or whatever. Sure. And the GM can hand-build all of those maps and things if they want. Um, we, we've got a tile-based system, so you can, like, say, I want a tree here, and I want a rock over there, and I want a road going through the middle. But we're also going to have a lot of pre-made maps where you can just say, you know, I'm not worried about exactly where the road goes, so this pre-made map of a road through the woods will be fine, and I'll use that. Right. And then if you want to, you know, alter it a little bit, you can. You can say, I don't want that tree there. I want that to be a rock instead. Or yes. I want it to be a clearing over there, and we'll put a little cabin in it. Right. So, so you can kind of you can alter it as much or as little as you want. Okay. And can you do that in real time? Like, let's just say, for example, say, okay, so you guys... Uh, you've been about now on the road, and you come to a small clearing, and that's when you have your that's where you have your clearing, and you can like you can drop things in, or because I yes. noticed that one of your stretch goals was like the fog of war, where not everybody could see everything at, at the same time. Like, how do those two elements go in together? Well, the um, okay, first on the the mapping thing, yeah, you'll be able to do it on the fly as a GM. So when your right. players do something entirely unexpected, which they will do in every game, I pretty much. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, and instead of well, going to, of visit the king, they decide to go try to find the, the legendary old witch who lives in the woods. Yes. You can throw together um, a, you know, a map relatively quickly. Right. Uh, we even have another mode where you don't even bother with the tiles if you need yes. something right now. And you yes. can effectively do finger painting on the, on the ground 
you know, just as oh, if nice, you're on a tablet, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're using a tablet, so you just draw out your map really quick, nice. and then it's just like a regular, you know, vinyl battle map where you can tell your players, okay, that's the river, don't walk in that, you know, and there's yeah, a couple yeah. here, and these are trees. Um, yes. So at the, you know, at worst, if you if you're completely flat-footed and no, you know, you have no time to do any even moving of tiles around, and none of our maps are going to work for you. Yes. You, you can sketch something up really quickly to, to keep the game rolling. Right. Um, so you've got lots of options there. And then um, what was the other half of what you asked now? <laughs> what I was saying is, so you've got a group of dudes and they're like, they're going along the place. But let's just say, uh, for example, you've got somebody who's a scout and the scout is going on ahead and you want to be able for the scout to see what it is that they see without everybody else seeing that same thing. Right, the fog of war, yes. Uh, one of our... Uh, first stretch goals we want to get to, uh, we'll, we'll add that. The idea there being, um, okay, so if you're playing the the scout and I'm playing the the knight, um, you're going to see on your tablet what your character sees. And oh. if you have, uh, you know, if you if you have night vision, let's say you have night vision goggles on or whatever, right. Um, you're going to, on your tablet, when you look down at the game map, you're going to see a lot more than I do when I look down at my game map. Right. Because it's each, because each person has their own device, you no longer have the situation where, um, you know, one person makes their, you know, notice the orc hiding in the shrubbery check. Yes. And then the GM puts it, you know, puts the miniature down on the table. And now, even though the rest of them had no clue it was there, now everybody clearly knows it's there because there it is. That's uh, right, yeah. I so see, in yeah. Storyscape, what we do is... It's still um, it's still set up so that only the player who sees it sees it, and right. it can do that automatically. The players won't even necessarily have to know that a, a roll to spot something is being made. When they get close enough to try to detect, the system will completely invisibly in the background check to see if they see it, and if right. they do, it's on their map, and if they don't, it's not. Right, I see. And then it's up to the players to say, you know, look out. Uh, Sir Bob, there's a there's a goblin sneaking up behind you, and, right. and that kind of adds more of the, you know, try keeping that social uh, aspect right. of gaming in there. We don't want to turn this into just a computer game. This is still a social right. play with your friends sort of thing. Yes, I can see that. Yeah, because it forces the the scout then to provide the information. Like either he's going to yell to Sir Bob, in which case maybe the goblin is going to hear that he's been alerted, or he has to pretend he hasn't seen the goblin and then just slowly walk back and then let Sir Bob know that it sort of encourages that thing. Rather than when you plunk down that goblin there, everybody automatically that whole conversation is skipped and 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 you know those all those possibilities go out the window. Right, and when the scout decides to go, you know, over the hill to see what's on the other side. Yes. Everybody doesn't see what's on the other side. They have to wait for the scout to come back and tell them. Right, right. And uh, right. they can be worried about what's going on because it's sure taking the scout a while to come back, you know. And, right, and that's sure. Thing. Um, and so who do, you, who, do you anticipate will, uh, who do you anticipate being most interested in this right off the bat? Like what sort of uh, – if you were going to describe a typical game group, like, like obviously you're going to be designing it from I – mean, well, let's go to this. Uh, who, who designed it with you? Like how did you get started on it? Uh, there were a lot of, of conversations about, you know, how this thing could work. Um, one of the – I've been thinking about it for a while, um, you know, because I, I have a game room with a table, you know, that we play games at, and it's always, you know, piled high with gaming stuff. Right. And there's just – you know, and if you want to go somewhere else and play a game, you have to lug a lot of things around. There are a lot of books to have and papers right. and pencils. 
Right. And um, I think that the conversation that most galvanized me to, okay, you know what, I'm going to go ahead, I'm, I'm going to do this thing for real instead of just thinking about it, was um, after that, that fantasy flight, uh, the Warhammer fantasy role play. Yes. Um, we were in a campaign of that. And I remember saying, you know, looking down at the table after we were done playing with all the, all the cards, all the dice, all the papers laid out on it, saying, man, won't it be great someday when all of that is in here? Right, right. Yes. And, you know, it was something I'd thought about before, but then we really got into a conversation about it, some friends of mine and I. Yes. And that's why I decided, you know what? It, why don't we, you know, let's just do this. Let's make it happen. Let's make it a thing. Because I really want it to exist. I'm old now. I have a family. I have a mortgage. I don't want to spend a lot of my, you know, scarce-ish free time yes. setting up and taking down role-playing right. games. I want to be able to just sit down and play. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah, just start right now. And, and so do you anticipate this also being, uh, will it be able to work over the internet? Like uh, you actually have to be in the same physical location? Well, that is um, the, the kind of the basic idea. The, the default case is you're all still sitting around the same room so you can all talk to each other. Right. That said, though, um, we have been getting a number of requests um, through the Kickstarter that we include, um, you know, online connection, which we're planning on doing at some point. We just yes. didn't want to promise it would be there at the end of the Kickstarter. Right, yes. Um, yeah, you, you, know, want to, you want to under-promise under and over-deliver, right? That's the thing. And, and I noticed exactly. you've got a couple, of, uh, a couple of secret stretch goals there. So, so maybe uh, if you get enough support, then that might be something that can come up. But don't, don't commit to that. That's just me speculating. Right. Well, uh, this, is, this is a scoop for you because just before uh, we started recording this, yes. um, we've, uh, my team's been doing some research and we are going to add a, uh, a stretch goal for, the, uh, for the, the, the voice and video chat nice. at um, 100000 So it's $4,000 after funding. Right. Uh, we're going to crack that right in as the first one we hit. So, right. Um, and so when did the Kickstarter begin for this? And where can people go to find out more information and, and uh, read some of the nuts and bolts? Okay, there are a ton of nuts and bolts to read. So... Um, slabtowngames.com right uh, is is our our website and it's got a bunch of information and a forum on there um mostly where i'm spending my time right now of course is on the kickstarter page um right. if you go to kickstarter.com and just do a search for storyscape it's all one right. word yep um you will find us and um you know Watch the, the video. Um, it's very clear that we are computer programmers and gamers and not videographers, but nevertheless, watch the video. <laughs> and, and then um, take a look at the, you know, all of our text we've got in there. Um, that is a hugely stripped down version of the text. The, the first yes. version I tried to put up actually wildly overwhelmed Kickstarter's uh, character limits. So we right. have a ton of information. So if you don't see something you want to know about or right. you want to ask if it's ask if it's if it's going to be in there yeah. by all means you know leave a comment and ask or uh yes. you can send an email to slabtown at slabtowngames.com right or you know any of our our social networking uh things we're right. you know at slabtown games on twitter we uh slabtown games is also the name on google plus and facebook so right. right you could probably find us um and and, and do ask because we may well have what you want, and we just haven't had the uh, the space to tell you about it yet. 
Right, sure. And that's the other thing that I wanted to just touch on before we sort of move a little bit sideways, um, and that is uh, your the background of the people developing it. This isn't just uh, somebody said, you know, it'd be a really good idea if we had this, so I'm just going to do it without having any um, any of the prerequisite skills, right? Like this is this is actually your bag, right? This is what you do. I Yeah, I'm a computer geek by trade. Yes. Um, I... I my, personally, I'm, I'm more, I've been more on the database side of it over the past few years, yes. but I've also done lots of programming. Um, yes. But our, our team, we assembled a team to you know, get all the skills that yes. I don't have you know, yes. together, because if I tried to do it all, it'd be a horrible mess and nobody would like it. Yes. Um, so we have Ivan Del Sol, who used to work for Garage Games making computer games, you know, right. yep. big, uh, complex ones. Yes. Yep. Um, Brian Underhill, uh, my my old friend who wrote Groups and Cliffhangers, is yes. on uh, kind of helping keep all the content stuff yep. you know, on track so we don't go off on some bizarre tangent that way. Um, we have uh, Steve Munn as, a, as our QA guy. He's also a, a, a computer geek from way back. Met him yes. when I was in the Army, actually. Right. Um, but we've got, yeah, we've got a, a small team of folks, and we've got, um, you know, each of us kind of has our niche and what we do. Right. And, and Dustin Sperling is the 3D artist, um, right. which is good because I have all the artistic talent of a particularly dim three-year-old. Right, right. And uh, and so, yeah, we've all kind of got our sphere that we, that we work in, and then with this Kickstarter, we'll be able to bring in some hired guns for the stuff that, you know, anything right. that we don't already have covered. Um, yes. We can we can bring in a higher gun temporarily to take care of the right. And I think it's worthwhile repeating that uh, that the actual system the system mechanic that uh, that's going to be coded or baked in, as you say, to the thing was written by Robin Laws, right? Right, and we've got that in hand. He's already written it, and we've you know right. that part's done. It's just the the process of taking that off of the the documents that he gave us and right. turning that into the actual thing you can use. Right. Um, because you know. As design documents go, a design document is not a very interesting or amusing read, and this is the sort of system that would be virtually impossible to play with just paper and pencil. Right, right. Because you know, it would make Rollmaster look like a walk in the park if you didn't have a computer doing right, the work. Sure. Yep, Luckily sure. for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so changing gears for you there. Um, yeah. If you were going to uh, start up a game of Storyscape with uh, four people of your choosing. Now, it can't be somebody you play with right now, and it can't be uh, somebody from your family who may have passed away you just want to see again. So four people that you would like to, uh, you'd like to role play with. Oh, man. That is a huge range of... Okay. Um, can, I, can I say Robin Laws? Because even though he's working on the project, I have never gamed with him. He lives in Toronto. I'm over in Oregon. I'll, I'll allow five. I'll allow five people because one of the other caveats is you can't choose any game designers, not even Gary Guy games. Although okay. people sometimes do choose. Oh, I can't Gary choose Gygax. a game designer at all. No, some people choose Gary Gygax, and I just give that as a, as, a, as a freebie. But no, just. Uh, okay. See, I would have chosen Ken Height as my other uh, initial oh, okay. game designer. Well, you okay. get, you got seven people playing now, but all right, go ahead. All right. Well, um, Will Wheaton clearly. Okay. I, I think a good call. Uh, I would. Actually, Will Wheaton and Felicia Day both, I think, would probably be on my okay. my dream team of people to game with. Right. Um, let's see. Oh, there. Stephen Fry. 
Yes. Yep. I think I would enjoy playing with Stephen Fry. And then, boy, see, I'm bringing in Stephen Fry. I kind of want to bring in Hugh Laurie as well because they kind of go together. That's right. Um, Fry and Laurie, right? A bit of Fry and Laurie. Yeah, exactly. Let's have them in there. Maybe, maybe David Mitchell. Right. Yeah. Yeah, David uh, Mitchell from Peep Show. I guess people maybe Peep Show you might have seen him on QI as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big QI fan, so you know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I can thoroughly endorse QI. That's great. Yeah, I I don't know. I think just I think comedians and smart people are yes. the folks I want to game with in general. Yes. yes. Um, though I guess I could maybe maybe have a spot for whoever it was that convinced my mom that D and D was evil. Right. Just to kind of get him back by making him really uncomfortable and making him play a whole thing. What's your favorite QI moment? I've got a very specific favorite QI moment. Oh. What do they say of the Acropolis where the Parthenon is? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the the sudden the sudden sing along that came um yes. yeah. that came out of there. I think that might be my very favorite moment. But there were okay. a number to choose from. Yeah, yeah. My my favorite QI moment is the uh, is the magnetic letters on the tray and Jimmy Carr puts oh, yes. on cat's legs, make them walk like a robot. Just, <laughs> just, just genius. Like I'm like, wow, that's. And it, he actually wrote a he wrote a comedy bit about that subsequently. But it was just it was just you have to watch it really to uh, to fully appreciate. It. it was just it was staggering that he'd put it together with this. But basically, the setup is they get a, a little metal tray with a whole bunch of those sort of fridge letters on it. Uh, yeah. and, and people write amusing things, whatever it might happen to be. But Jimmy Carr, who's a British comedian, used every single one of his letters and wrote this this statement about putting Smarties tubes on cat's legs, make them walk like a robot. It was it's, it was amazing. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I thought it must have been a setup, but it turned out it was. It was just one of those amazing things that, that happened. But uh, you know, so check check out uh, check out QI. Okay, so if you had to choose, um, and you can take this whatever way like Gandalf or a Dumbledore. Gandalf. Totally Gandalf, 100% Gandalf. Why is that? <laughs> Dumbledore is, he is like the the store brand Gandalf ripoff, I think. <laughs> now, I realize it's not going to win me a lot of friends in Harry Potter circles, but, you know, when you, you go to the store and you have, like, there's Coca-Cola and then there's, like, just cola. Right. Okay. That, that's how I kind of feel about Gandalf and Dumbledore. I, I am loyal to my, my first... Um, you know, powerful wizard in a position of authority and knowledge, <laughs> and that for me is Gandalf. All right, fair enough. What about yeah, no, no hesitation there? <laughs> what about Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter? Luke Skywalker again. I, I think the problem we're running into. I'm not a Harry Potter fan. Um, which right there, I, I'm sure there are people now rushing to to go cancel their their Kickstarter. Uh, <laughs> no, please don't if you're thinking about doing that. It's okay if you like Harry Potter. Uh, it's just not my not my thing. Sorry, to each uh, their own. Right? <laughs> I, I think it's because I'm such a partially because I'm such a game design geek that the rules of Quidditch just bother me so much. Fair enough. You know, the the little golden thing is all that really matters. I don't know why they bother with the rest of the game. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, well, let's just let's just back it up. I'm going to put my Harry Potter nerd hat on here. I'd like to point out that in the uh, Quidditch World Cup, um, I don't know who it was that Romania were playing, but Victor Crumb caught the snitch just because he could, even though he ended the game and his team lost. I forget who they were playing. Somebody who's a bigger, uh, bigger um, Harry Potter nerd will, uh, will, will probably be yelling at their screen right now. Maybe it wasn't even Victor Crumb, but yeah, he caught the snitch, even though it means that the team lost the game. 
So, you know, you, you can win just by uh, by getting those points by hitting the whatever those quaffle is it? The quaffles through the uh, through the rings. Anyway, I'll take my nerd hat off now. Um, what about uh, John McClain or uh, Indiana Jones? Oh, man. I have to go with Indiana Jones. But John McClain is a, a very worthy competitor, I would say. <laughs> a worthy competitor. All right, then uh, what about um, Indiana Jones or Han Solo? Now you're just being mean. <laughs> I never see like, the questions of you, this is I, I have two sons. You might as well ask me to choose between them. It's Sophie's choice. I know. Oh man, Han Solo or any? Okay, I'm gonna have. Oh, are we including the the Han Solo novels of Brian Daly that came out way? way no, uh, Disney Disney has been uh, has just recently announced that the extended universe will not apply to the next Star Wars film. So. Okay, so know. without the extended universe. Uh, most of the extended universe, I completely agree with them on. I'm not that thrilled about it. But those three Brian Daly books from way back when were fantastic. What but without, the, without the those, what? Uh, what are the, the titles of those for people that might be interested in reading it? Okay. Um, it's a trilogy. It's the Han Solo trilogy. Um, it came out, I believe, between the release of Star Wars and the release of The Empire Strikes Back. So they right. were the first Star Wars books that weren't just novelizations of the movies. Uh, right, to the right. knowledge. Right. And the trilogy about Han Solo and Chewbacca and what they were doing just before um, they meet Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan in that cantina right. on, on Tatooine. And they have a number of adventures. Um, and they are such well-written books. They, The stuff you like about Han Solo in the movies, you take that and you make a whole trilogy about just that and so right. you don't have any of Luke whining about his parentage or um, Obi-Wan being wise. You just have Han Solo and Chewie doing awesome stuff that makes you laugh. Right, and right. It, it's, a, it's a fantastic trilogy, and I recommend it to everybody who exists in the entire world. Um, that, so having, having that sort of background and reading deeply about Han Solo, is Chewbacca a dog? Chewbacca is not a dog. Even though even though Han Solo like scratches him like he's a dog, and is it in uh, the Jedi, or is it Empire Strikes Back? He scratches I, him like a dog. I have to assume that Wookiees just that's sort of a, a friendly thing you do. Um, oh, that's what Wookiees do. Okay. And, and Han knows that, and so he uh, interacts with Chewbacca in, in a friendly Wookieeish way when he can. Right. So he can't, you know, talk to Chewbacca in the Wookiee language. He can only, you know, give him a scratch every once in a while. <laughs> All right, I think that's the title of our show. That's what Wookiees do. Um, so, um, who is your favorite villain and why? Favorite villain of, of all time ever? Yep. Real or imaginary? And oh, oh, man, this... Okay, obviously, I was, you know, I think I was in first grade when Star Wars came out, so Darth Vader has to be pretty high on that list. Okay. But... I don't know, Niccolo Machiavelli potentially all right wrote the prince you know which yes. and he may have not really have been a villain no but he certainly uh wrote in such a way that he wasn't particularly concerned if the people reading his books were <laughs> have you uh, have you uh, sort of heard the theory that he was uh, writing a uh, tongue-in-cheek and that it wasn't like it, it wasn't what it's now taken to to be about like i mean th i guess that's irrelevant in as much as you know the, well, the the what machiavellian means to us today but about that book in particular, The Prince? 
I I think I I've seen kind of hints of that. I haven't really read up on it at all, um, but I know that some people you know suggest that. I have no idea how much stock to put in that suggestion. Yeah, I mean, it's all speculation. Um, but for purposes of this discussion, I'll say the the version of Niccolo Machiavelli that lives in my head, yes. perhaps my favorite villain. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. And just while well, you you mentioned Darth Vader, so I'm going to go. I've asked this question from a number of people that have brought up Darth Vader. What does Darth Vader want? Well, okay. First, I'm going to set aside the the prequel trilogy because it doesn't okay, count sure. in my head. Okay. Sure. Yep. Fair enough. Darth Vader. Has, he's he's a bad guy. He's done horribly evil things, and he keeps doing them. But there's a spark of him that still wants redemption and still wants a connection with his son. Right. And that's that part of him is what um, makes him at all interesting, other than just he's a guy with cool powers who can choke people from you know across the room. Right. Yes. Um, he's still that. There's that little glimpse of something he actually cares about. Right. And uh, of course, you know, if, if someone's going to get mad at me for spoiling Return of the Jedi, tough. Um, <laughs> you know, at, at the end, when he finally makes that decision to, you know, save Luke at the expense of, of himself, um, you know, that was the big kind of redemptive moment yeah. that makes him a great villain as opposed to just the guy who exists for the good guys to be awesome against. That's right, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's go to the flip side of that. Who's your favorite hero and why? My favorite what? Hero. <sighs> it might be Indiana Jones. Um, though, no, you know, I'm going to limit myself to superheroes for this because right. Spider-Man is the best superhero. I can't wait to hear why. Okay, because... Okay, Batman is cool, right? He's rich, he has all these gadgets, and he beats the crap out of out of bad guys left and right. And he's very awesome. I love Batman very much. Don't get me wrong. You know, he's, he's awesome. But Spider-Man is human. He's, he's a guy. He just, he wants to be a decent person. He has these abilities he didn't ask for. And so he does his best to to use them for good. But he has to strive against so much crap you know when 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 batman you know wins a fight you know he, he's all beat up and everything but there's never like this emotional turmoil in batman because he's so deeply broken already the emotional wow. turmoil happened years ago and you know his parents were killed and all that he's that that's just part of him now wow. superman has tons of powers but he's so overpowered you can't really relate to his struggles because his struggles are things like I must stop a you know bad guy from destroying the sun. Yes. <laughs> Where, whereas Spider-Man, he's just a guy. He's like you and me, except in my case, he's better looking. But uh, he's um, he just wants to be a decent person. He's not trying to you know he's not driven to end crime, and he's right. not you know an alien sent to protect Earth. He's just a guy, and he's doing the best he can with what he has to work with. And what he has to work with is pretty cool when you're up against a couple of thugs with pistols, but it's crap when you're up against Galactus. Right, sure. And, but he doesn't give up. He keeps trying. And that right. is, for me, getting the crap beat out of you, but you still keep trying, and you keep trying to do the right thing, and you fall down and you get back up and keep trying. That's what makes him, I think, the greatest of the superheroes. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Jake Boone. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. That's it for episode 87 of Penny Red. So until next week, keep talking in the walk. Thank you.